0: One Sacred Pause with Jessica Winderl. Welcome yogis, truth seekers, and meditators. Uh, My name is Jessica and we're here on the One Sacred Pause podcast. So if you're interested in talking about yoga and meditation, you are in the right place. And today I am interviewing Krissa Ludvigsen. And Krissa is one of those people who uh, is super inspiring in everything that she does from being a business professional, an entrepreneur, a yoga teacher, and most recently, a new mama. And so I'm super excited to get down to um, all the things she's up to. So welcome, Krissa. Thank
1: you. I just want to say to everyone that while we're having this podcast recording, my right foot is currently rocking my baby to sleep. So it's all about multitasking.
0: Yes, but is it? That's the question. That's true. That'll lead us right into the conversation about... Mindfulness and meditation, and this idea of one sacred pause. And as yoga practitioners and yoga teachers, you and I both know that the goal really isn't who can do the best handstand or who can get the most appropriate alignment in a certain posture. So, as we kind of peel back the layers of the practices of yoga, what What do you think is the most important thing to you in your personal practice?
1: I think like we were just talking about five minutes ago, it's showing up. Mm -hmm. I mean, because we live in a world where we're so distracted, whether you have a full-time job or a baby to take care of or family duties or social duties, etc. It's so tempting to just say you're too busy. Mm -hmm. But I think the most important thing is whether it's five minutes... 30 minutes or an hour just showing up to your practice and just slowly building up whether it's one asana one pranayama exercise just making sure that you continue to do those things that we learned during our classes during our training to help bring us home and remind us of who we are and why we're doing this and one of the quotes I love is you are what you constantly do oh nice and for me that's what I try and remind myself you know you can't call yourself a yogi if you know, you kind of come back to it like once every 10 years. I mean, maybe your soul remembers it from your previous life. But I like to think that, you know, um, a musician's a musician because they pick up a guitar or they write a piece of music a little every day. And you're a yogi if you do just one little thing every day that contributes to your practice. It's kind of like Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours Theory. It's a great book, Outliers.
0: Yes. No, I've read it. Well, and it's also like the yoga sutras yeah. that, you know, teach us that in order for it to be a practice, we have to have consistency, yes. we have to have steadiness, tapas, dharma. And yeah, and we have to have uh, the intention or yeah. the earnestness, Yeah, depending on the translation you read. And I think that's what really speaks to me and I know speaks to you as a practitioner um, coming back to the wisdom of yoga. Mm-hmm. Where are we getting this information from? Is it just this, you know, spiritual bypassing we see on Instagram mm-hmm. hashtag blessed <laughs> oh my God. or hashtag grateful <laughs> hashtag grateful or can we actually encourage our students and ourselves to come back to the guru and the teacher mm-hmm. and the the teachings that you know resonate with you and I?
1: Yeah, I think it's also though as a teacher showing up and. Being true to yourself, have, you need to have your own solid practice first, I think, before you can show up into a room and expect to influence other people because they can read your energy yeah. and they can tell, I think, if you're a seasonal teacher, an experienced teacher, what angle you're really coming from. And that's why, I mean, for me personally, when I was teaching regularly here in Oslo before maternity leave, I would always have my practice before teaching class so that I would always have that one or two hours switching off from work or whatever I was doing to just zone into myself so then I could be fully present for them when I enter the room. And, you know, it's so nice to have your personal practice because it's your way of just not giving yourself any excuse to walk away. And it's just your time to be silent and have your one sacred pause so that you can share that with other people.
0: Yeah, and I think that's such an important... Well, you said a few really important things there, but... As a teacher, specifically, staying rooted in the practice mm-hmm. and staying a student first and foremost. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, pretty much any modern teacher you talk to says they struggle with that. Mm-hmm. If you start teaching more and more classes, if you're a full time teacher, mm-hmm. or if you teach uh, classes more of a hobby on top of your day job, something has to give. Yeah. We are so conditioned to be multitaskers and keep so many projects in the air and work and family and laundry and walking the dog and unfortunately a lot of times it is our personal practice that kind of gets the boot
1: yeah exactly (laughs) and I think that's why when I decided to go into this yoga industry or lifestyle I know a lot of there are a lot of people that do it full-time they either teach classes full-time or workshops or retreats or trainings etc but I knew that from for me and my lifestyle and my personality that teaching a couple of classes and workshops throughout the week was enough because i wanted first and foremost to be able to maintain my personal practice Mm. because at least for me i need to be fully present and keep working on myself before i can give that to other people because it's my way of giving back and if i'm walking into the room with my stress because we're humans or my anxieties or worries then that's just giving off the wrong energy to people so if i can stay positive and clean then I know that I'm at least shedding off a little more positivity in the class when we're together.
0: Yeah, I can't agree more yeah. with what you just said. And it's hard, though, yeah. to intentionally leave your day at the door when you come in to teach. And, and ultimately, it is an act of service, being a yoga yeah. teacher. It shouldn't be about the ego. It shouldn't be about us, you know, putting on a presentation in yeah. front of the room. It's really, no, okay, how do we now transmit the wisdom that was generously taught to us? Yeah. Yeah. And open the door for new students and to see that light bulb go off in our students is so exciting. Yeah. And they're like, oh my gosh, I understand what you're talking about. Or, oh my gosh, I, I can see the progression. Or I
1: feel it now. Yes. Yep. And I think uh, you mentioned this thing of yoga teachers having to present themselves. Mm-hmm. It's It's so true because I think a lot of people think, oh, yoga teachers, they're... They're almost so perfect or they're they're so holy or they've just got it. But the thing is, I think you would agree with me, most yoga teachers are here because they've had to overcome something or they were drawn to it for a reason and every yoga teacher's got a backstory. You have to experience, I think, a little a little hardship or a little darkness almost to appreciate the light. You know, or if you're constantly living in a bubble, you're not really gonna appreciate the practice because you're not having to question the bigger things or yourself.
0: Exactly, and it comes back to just that, that idea of the humanity that all yeah. of us are experiencing, and the idea that underneath the basic levels of our humanity, we're all the same, yeah. that we all have the this, this spirit and the spark of the divine, and when we, I think as teachers, are able to create space in the classroom for students to have their own experience, mm-hmm. that's when some of the magic slips in, mm-hmm. and we can't do that as teachers if our ego is clouding yeah. this quote-unquote presentation, we come in and we're like, okay, class, today we're going to be doing Ekapada Raja Kapatanasana <laughs> or you know, whatever yeah. we're talking about and we lead the students into something that's impossible yeah. for them in that moment.
1: It's We've lost what we're here don't to understand do. understand what they're doing it for and, because if you just go in and you're telling them, okay, we're going to do Ekapada Raja Kapatanasana, and you just come at it from a purely physical, postural alignment viewpoint, they're maybe gonna be there struggling because they're not flexible enough or they're too stiff, but really the point is to, to be present in the pose, feel your body, and find stillness in that pose, regardless of what you're feeling, to start to maybe listen to your thoughts, whether you're feeling aggravated at the time or start to find the opening And then stillness and just leaving the student there for a few moments, a few Mm -hmm. sacred moments, to just feel the subtler energies of the pose. It's not just about the shape, it's about the feeling of the pose. Yeah,
0: I mean that's that's where my practice changed is when I had a teacher who was wise enough to give me time and space. Mm -hmm. First of all in the asana, because that's usually where we come to the practice of yoga. That's the entry point, the gateway, mm-hmm. is usually the asana. Mm-hmm. Then maybe we regress and start learning about the yamas and niyamas. Yes. If we're talking about the eight limbs. Yeah, and then hopefully move forward. Yes. Into the the pranayama and the pratyahara. Higher levels. The higher, and,
1: levels. Or the higher
0: yeah. levels, the more more subtler vibrations. The
1: PhDs of yoga. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly, <laughs> and I, I, it's funny how we. I look at society around us and I look at myself sometimes and we're moving so fast and I was reading something, um, earlier today about there's this new concept. you probably might be interested in this. I know yeah. you're doing it already or will be. Um, where this PhD in occupational therapy was talking about this brand new idea of mm-hmm. retro parenting.
1: Oh, cool. Meaning, Tell me more.
0: Yes. So meaning, uh, There's a, as an occupational therapist, she's been seeing, pediatric Mm -hmm. occupational therapist, she was seeing a lot of kids come in with problem, weak wrists and weak shoulders. Mm -hmm. And it's because they're not allowed to crawl and play. They're always in a bouncy chair. They're always in their um,
1: play pens pens and their
0: chairs and the car seat and their bugaboo. Or if you live in a place
1: like Hong Kong, cooped up in their apartment with no outside air or grass to plan.
0: Yeah. So physically, their bodies aren't developing the way our bodies developed 20, 30, 40 years Mm -hmm. ago, and you add on to that the fact that there's usually some sort of technology. Mm -hmm. There's Whether it's in the background, if there's a TV on, or if there is the iPod or iPad.
1: Or the phones in their face.
0: Right. So their brain development is also being stunted, Mm -hmm. in addition to the physical development. So this idea of retro-parenting is get rid of all technology, which of course, to a lot of yogis and our listeners, that's a no-brainer, but getting super simple. So, not even buying toys, but maybe making blocks out of leftover wood, sanding
1: them down. Mm-hmm. Or, well, Nicholas would love that.
0: Yes, <laughs> yeah, using things you already have and yeah. carrying it back, simplifying, simplifying, simplifying. Kids only need two or three toys. They don't need a whole play room full of plastic crap that you get from the Toys R Us.
1: I totally agree. I mean, sometimes I look around and I question how Nicholas and I are first time parents. And, you know, we're walking around outside. It's raining, and we've got Maya in her like little summer outfit and a thin blanket. And then I look at everyone else, and they've got their fancy prams with their full rain covers and like triple layered jackets. And then I'm questioning, oh gosh, do we know what we're doing? And then I'm here, and I'm like, do we have enough toys for her to develop her brain? But then I realize, you know what I my way of kind of stimulating that part of her mind is just to talk to her Mm. and to I mean, there's way too many things in this apartment, whether it's like the pantry full of cereal boxes or books on the shelf. And, you know, there's things to stimulate her mind in terms of what she smells, what she hears, what she sees. So it's just being connected with her as well. And just pointing things out and, you know, telling her this is a drawer, this is a pen, you know, it doesn't need to be anything fancy. Yeah. Well, and
0: that's the human connection part of it too. The bond between the mother and the child or the father and the child, but also the development as a human, you know, when we are on technology all the time and we're disconnected and we're creating, you know, in Ayurvedic terms, vata vitiation. Mm -hmm. And then so many people are upset because they're, they're lacking that true human connection in their life. And children... Also, you know, those are the patterns that people are seeing with higher rates of, you
1: know, developmental issues and behavioral issues. Yeah, there's always something in the way. There's always a piece of equipment or technology or something solid that is in between the two people that are supposed to be there right in front of each other.
0: Yeah, and it comes back to this conversation of one sacred pause where it's everything around us is a distraction. Mm -hmm. It's whether we're a child or an adult or... It's something that is being made up to pull the mind out of Mm
1: -hmm. the
0: discomfort of being still. Yeah. Of slowing down, of doing one thing at a time. Yeah. And I was even just thinking about this for myself. Even though I think about every day, my meditation practice and my asana practice and really the the deeper practices of self-inquiry, which are my jam. I love, love (laughs) doing that. Um, I realized I don't listen to music anymore, and I love music, and I realized that now just listening to music has become a little boring to my brain. I need to have a podcast on. I need to have some other um, inspirational show that I'm listening mm-hmm. to or YouTube. You need to be
1: doing multiple things at the same time.
0: Yeah, or oh. not even at the same time, but even listening to podcasts about yoga or business or whatever. <laughs> would I love Would I? love to listen to, that's, my brain has now been conditioned to a higher level of stimulation
1: mm-hmm.
0: than perhaps when I was in my teens mm-hmm. and I would just listen to a record all
1: night long. Or your and, Alanis Morissette cassette Yes. Tape.
0: <laughs> yes. I didn't have cassettes. I did have CDs, but... of oh gosh, now I feel old. No, I'm older <laughs> than you. Um, but it's just a fascinating way for me, a reflection on myself to mm-hmm. see that, oh wow, even though I practice yoga and mindfulness and meditation, even though I know better, it's so funny that, that our humanity creeps in. And yeah. it's it's like, oh, okay, one step forward, two steps back. Yeah. And, and that's okay.
1: And then when you're not on the mat, you have got your, well, we've both got our laptops out, our phones next to us. It's just, we need to spend time with ourselves and put technology away or put it in a basket somewhere and just... Remember that Earth wasn't born with technology. Yeah. we have created it.
0: Yeah. And just even in the last, you know, 50 years where it's accelerated so rapidly to the detriment of our physical development, the detriment of our relationships, mm-hmm. romantic, platonic, we don't know how to communicate anymore. And I was reading another article. This was a while ago, but it was about how a lot of kids who are graduating from university, they've only known technology. Oh, yeah, like
1: my sister's generation. She's 16 going on 17. Oh. She's always... She was born where iPhones were already created. Yeah. She hasn't known anything else. Yeah.
0: And so these kids, when they graduate, and they're going out on job interviews for their first time, and they have to go shake the hand of somebody who's of an older generation who wasn't Mm -hmm. born with iPhones and iPads and laptops... And they have to shake the hand of that person, look them in the eye, and hold a conversation during the interview.
1: And they're struggling. It them out. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They're mm-hmm. struggling to get jobs because they don't know how to do that. Yeah. If you put them in front of a laptop and you say, okay, uh, choose a filter for this photograph, put an algorithm so you get more Build hits. Build your website SEO, so that's
1: your online CV and just send that away. Yep. Then they excel. hmm
0: And that's kind of, well, it's really scary to think about and makes me grateful that I'm just old enough where I didn't experience that as yeah. a teenager.
1: and I mean, so I've got a question okay. for you in terms of this technology and trying to find stillness and running a business and stuff. So how, how is it being a yoga teacher and a yoga student and owning your own yoga business? Do you find that there's conflict sometimes between trying to do things yogically versus commercially, for example?
0: Yes and no. I think great question. I think <laughs> it's an important question, one that I think every yoga entrepreneur struggles with. Yeah. And I've gotten better at some of the online digital stuff. It's mm-hmm. not my forte, I'm not that interested in general. Uh, but I have taught myself how to use, you know, I, I watch YouTube videos. That's one of my hacks for <laughs> teaching <laughs> myself. YouTube is great. YouTube's amazing. Um, or I hire somebody. Yeah. You know, again, knowing Either you have time or you have money. You usually don't have both. Or Mm -hmm. expertise. And if I don't have expertise and I have spent, you know, 20 hours trying to figure it out, finally I give in the towel and say, okay, I'm going to pay somebody
1: (laughs) to help me with this. Because we can't do everything.
0: No, we can't. But, so in terms of the yoga side of the business with the marketing and the technology, um, I don't necessarily practice bring my yoga practice into that
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know I think we have to stay competitive to some degree
1: mm-hmm.
0: I think you can be the best yoga teacher in the world but if nobody knows where you are or where to find you they're not going to get your message they're not going to get your message you're going to constantly be stuck on that hamster wheel of struggle
1: yeah
0: and frustration so on one hand with marketing I'm, I'm all on board for modern techniques modern technologies let's go for it yeah but then when it comes down to the actual uh, ethics of business yeah. and running a yoga business, and this is one of my very favorite topics to talk about because I think there is a massive disconnect in general mm-hmm. in the yoga industry uh, with people acting ethically. Yeah, People cut corners, they try and you know squeeze an extra buck out of a situation, mm-hmm. and I think yoga teachers deserve to be paid well and mm-hmm. to be compensated for their time and their experience, and unfortunately, you know, I'm coming from America. I'm an American yoga teacher where uh, capitalism reigns.
1: Yeah.
0: And yoga is a commodity. Yeah. And so I've seen it time and time again, unfortunately, in the, the U.S. where um, it's really disappointing and people aren't acting with integrity. Yeah.
1: And I was about to say that's the difference between, I think, a yogi trying to run a business and make a living or a business trying to piggyback off of this yoga as a commodity, something that they can sell. Yeah. And I think you can really feel that difference, you know, when you walk into a studio or choose to buy from a particular brand or follow a certain teacher or style. Yeah. I mean, there's something different for everybody. But um, but speaking about this, there is a great book you might like to read called Conscious Capitalism.
0: Oh, yeah. I've heard of it. I haven't it's, read it.
1: It's good. Yeah. Yeah. And they talk about the same things about running a business isn't the evil. Yeah. It's an activity that you do and everyone has to make a living. It's just trade. Yeah. You know, it's a trade of services or goods or etc. cetera. But it's, it's about starting with, like you said, integrity and honest intentions and using that to influence the way that you build partnerships with people. Yes. Um, how you, you know, it's not necessarily marketing or advertising in a sense of spreading a message and it's just about coming back to why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think it will become very transparent whether you're trying to do it to help people or to just make a quick buck.
0: Yeah. I will say, though, I found in Norway, I've been here almost two years now. How long have you been here? Almost three years. Yeah. Yeah. Working as a yoga teacher in Norway has been very different from working in the U.S., Mm -hmm. um, where I do think more people bring uh, a a yogic sense to the business side of doing yoga. Yoga teachers are paid much better here than yes. in the U.S. Uh, that work-life balance exists a lot better. Uh, studios aren't open until all hours of the night. <laughs> Saturday, Sunday. Um, yeah.
1: Usually, the Norwegians are good at the whole work-life balance. Yeah,
0: very good. And so as a yoga teacher, that's like, you know, this is a wonderful place to yeah. be.
1: Yeah. And coming from, say, where I was teaching and working in Hong Kong, and my mom is also a teacher. She's in the Philippines. And when she told me how much they earn over there versus what we earn here, I just, I was shocked. Yeah. But then again, not surprised. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, you know, this conversation comes up time and time again where there are some people in the yoga world who are of the belief that, oh, well, yoga is a spiritual practice. We shouldn't be confusing money and spirituality. And then, of course, there's the people, the camp that I belong to, which is like, no, no, we deserve to be compensated. Any teacher deserves to be compensated. And, you know, people forget, especially you and I both draw a lot of our uh, personal practice and teaching from the Yoga Sutras and Mm -hmm. Patanjali and the Eight Limbs. And, you know, even in those texts, Patanjali was talking about that there is an exchange of energy. Yeah. And back in the day when it was the, the guru teacher...
1: But it's also about our, our dharma or our duties in the world. You know, it's even in the sutras, they talk about they're the, the strains of people that are kind of more of the, the yogis and the teachers and the gurus that are or were living in the caves or high up in the mountains and all they did was meditate. But then there are also the householders. Mm-hmm. I think that's the word for it. Where, you know, we live in the cities where we do have this exchange of, like you said, energy or services. Because we do live in a society. And unless you are choosing to pull out of that and live on your own, you don't need to participate. But if you choose to participate in society, everyone has to work together. And um, what else is I going to say?
0: Yeah, well, that's the model, though, back, back in the day in India with the guru student was... When you were a student of yoga or, and then became a teacher of yoga, there was no expectation that you had to pay bills or worry about your food or worry about any of the... Because you
1: lived in an ashram and you did karma yoga.
0: You did karma yeah. yoga and it was also the duty of the community to support the teachers and the students. Mm-hmm. And so they would bring you know, the food and leave it outside the ashram or leave it at the doorstep of the teacher or the guru so that they could focus
1: solely on the spiritual From practice. The practice. I remember what I was going to say, too. I think people don't realize in the modern day, because that model doesn't exist anymore, unless right. you are going to certain parts of India where there is still that ashram lifestyle. But teacher trainings these days can be very expensive. Um, I mean, I think I must have paid more than 5000 US dollars for both of my trainings. And that's not including the continued professional development, going to different workshops around the world, or retreats, or just practicing at different studios. So... There is that side that people need to think about where, you know, we have done our part getting to this stage. And it's if you're trying to run your own business, for example, to help spread the word and show up in different places, you also have your costs to cover. But that doesn't mean that you're overcharging people. You're just trying to make a living like everyone else. Yeah.
0: And and placing that value on your contribution, Mm-hmm. to society, not undervaluing or undercutting, which I do see a lot of yoga teachers doing also. And, and more so probably newer teachers where they're doing free yoga in the park or they're you know charging just a minimal minimal amount. And you, know, I always encourage new students when we're doing mentorship, uh, or I'm sorry new teachers, Charge more. Like you don't, you you probably couldn't get away with charging an arm and a leg or mm-hmm. the same as a senior teacher, but charge enough to show people that you're serious Yeah. and you value what you're bringing to the table and then people will take you seriously also.
1: And that will also help make your teaching or your business or whichever angle more sustainable. Exactly. So you can't keep showing up for people.
0: Yeah. You're not exhausted mm-hmm. when there's, you know, teachers who work full time, many of them, And they work at five different studios and they run ragged going from here to there to here to there, barely squeaking by.
1: I think another way for, I mean, just as a little tip to someone maybe as a new teacher coming into the industry is if you're unsure about how much you should charge, it's to either look at different studios and how much they're paying their teachers or look at other industries, you know, graphic designers, freelance filmmakers, um, you know, people helping out in the kitchen or just something freelance and just see what their hourly rate is and, you know, realize that you're worth something as well and your your time is valuable. And if you have a little conflict in your head in terms of, is this yogic or not to charge for my time, then do a free class, do charity yoga or find another way in your life to give back because there is, there has to be a balance, you know. And I think if everyone's trying to, Feel guilty about whether they're doing enough or not is just to realize, you know, whether you're choosing to have a vegetarian diet or um, working out at a charity, it's you have to choose what resonates with you in terms of your way of giving back to the community and the world.
0: Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction between if if somebody is struggling with charging money for their teaching, then maybe that's not the right model for them. Maybe mm-hmm. they should if they're doing it as an act of service, mm-hmm. go donate their time to a charity, you know, volunteer and teach for free. Yeah. But I always like to tell students in in my teacher trainings, there is a difference between teaching for free, trying to get students to come back and like buy a pass with you <laughs> or come te- come take class with you at a studio and karma yoga. Yeah. The seva, the selfless service, like teaching for a cause because you believe in it and you want to help support it
1: and because you choose to do so and you don't feel obligated to do so
0: yeah Yeah. exactly yeah well and you know continuing to talk about entrepreneurship and yoga and this intersection of commerce and spirituality Mm -hmm. you recently as one of your side many side (laughs) (laughs) projects uh, launched a new yoga prop
1: yes do you Um, want to tell us about it Yes, uh, thanks for asking, and I mean, thank you as well, because it was actually during the workshop that we did together at the Atman Yoga School training last year. Yeah, last year. Um, you asked me to teach the backbend workshop there, and it's I, it's, I love telling the story, and I think I've said it so many times now, but I remember you guys asked me to teach that training, and I was writing my notes and you know working out the sequence at home here, and then I realized that I was missing a really key prop that I had used at the Dharma Yoga Center in New York. And funnily enough, it was just that one time that my guru, Dharma Mitra, handed it out. It was basically this basket full of, you know, little fabric rings that helped us, you know, get our foot to our head and in full Asana, for Mm -hmm. example, or in um, pigeon pose or kapyasana. And, And so the Dharma straps are basically an easier way to use yoga straps. I mean, I love... I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie, actually. I'm not a huge fan, <laughs> being honest here. I'm not a huge fan of the stereotypical yoga belt or straps that you find at studios. I mean, I think they work for certain styles. Um, a younger, for example, they're great because they actually use a lot of props, like blocks and chairs, and they need a really long strap to hold them into place, etc. But I think for, for my practice or what we were trying to do with the workshops or the heart openers, was so just have a really easy to use prop to help people bind better or get a little more reach in certain poses or a little more bend in their heart openers. So our straps are basically, they come in three sizes, small, medium, and large. And I think they're currently the first strap that combines the the original kind of uh, cotton canvas fabric with elastic. So you have one that's about 17 centimeters long, then 34 and 68. And depending on how flexible you are, um, they have different colors to choose from as well, and it it reminds me of Dharma always said, you know, it's use every tool available. I love that quote. so Whether it's a yoga strap or a block or a book, or your mat, so um, use whatever you need to to help you with your practice. And so yeah, I've been working this project for the last year, and again, it's you know my my goal isn't necessarily to have every yogi person in the world holding a dharma strap forever the goal is to try them out and if it helps you in your practice then use it and then hopefully one day you won't need it and then you can pass them back to us and we'll recycle it or we'll give it to someone that can afford them but for me it's yeah it's it's creating something that people can use for now and then passing that on um so yeah, currently we've got an online web shop at thedharmaapproach.com where I list all the classes that I do here in Oslo and upcoming workshops that I'll be teaching, and then also a way to get a strap or a full kit, etc. So if you're interested, go check it out. Yeah, well, and we'll we'll put that on the
0: show notes too. But yeah, well, it's ingenious. I and it's funny because Are you enjoying I saw. Your kit? <laughs> I am I am and I'm waiting to take a better photo. Although I know there's no such thing and it really doesn't matter. But, um, you know, as I'm slowly getting back into my physical practice after, uh, illness and getting stronger and getting more flexible, um, and building back up to where I used to be maybe a few years ago, Mm -hmm. it's for me actually a really helpful prop because I love backbending and Mm -hmm. it used to be a big part of my, my asana. And now I'm just, I'm so tight through the chest and the heart from hunching over and, protecting and you know all the energetic things that come along with trauma in life and so it's taking me a really long time to start to open up and using the dharma strap is so helpful because of that little extra stretch
1: yeah and I'm (laughs) glad you mentioned that because I mean I wouldn't say pregnancy was me being sick but I was definitely getting used to a new body a heavier body, a stiffer body, and even now, having given birth, just realizing that my my shoulders and my chest and my upper body are so stiff from hunching over and breastfeeding all the time. Yeah. And so the ironic thing was I I started working on these straps while I was um, pretty much just newly pregnant. And as I got heavier over the next few months, I was so glad that I created these, (laughs) at least for myself, because I was trying to do a Tita Panagustasana, and I couldn't reach my toe anymore, but with the straps, I was able to do a modification of the pose without having to pull out this super long buckle that's just, you know, like, way too long. It clangs on the floor when you're finished with it, and then it's just... These are just small, tidy and neat, and they, they're they not messy, and they're not noisy, and yeah. so. I'm my biggest fan right now. Yeah,
0: no, and you should be. That's also an important part in the, you know, yoga business. You you should be your biggest fan yeah. and your biggest advocate.
1: You need to believe in yourself so other people believe in you.
0: Yeah, but one thing I think you forgot to mention about the straps, though, is they're a loop. They're a closed loop.
1: Yes. Thank you, Jessica. Yes, you're welcome. I'm so close to them. <laughs> they are a yeah. closed loop, yeah. yeah.
0: But it's fun because, you know, I saw the very first prototype that you brought to that backbend workshop.
1: It was my old stretchy pants. The legs I'd cut up into little pieces. Yeah.
0: And they were, like, rolling up. And they worked. I mean, they got the job done.
1: But they weren't very pretty.
0: No. And now, (laughs) when I saw your final package for the Dharma straps, I was like, oh, my gosh. Of course. They're, like, so professional and perfect. And the packaging is so nice. And it's, like, something you would totally see in any yoga studio around the world. Yeah. And... I think that's just a testament to your focus and dedication, (laughs) which is also itself a practice
1: of yoga. and I honestly wouldn't be this calm, and I actually don't think I would be this productive if I didn't have a yoga practice, because I need that time. I use my practice to clear my mind so that I can think clearly or reflect on my thoughts or what I'm doing from day to day. And I mean, there's another quote that I like, because I'm just throwing them out there, but Uh, I think it goes something like, you know, if you feel like you only have five minutes of yoga, five minutes for yoga, you actually need an hour. Yoga gives you time. People think it takes time, but once you invest that one hour, it's just, you become a whole new better person, a more productive person, a more present person. So yeah, that's another one for the books. Yeah,
0: no, and it's true. It's, um, we get so agitated and so anxious and panicked about this concept of time. There's yeah. not enough time. I don't have enough time. Oh my gosh. Okay, I can't get there. I can't do this. I can't do that. And then all of a sudden, our language is so negative day in and day out. Our self-talk is so negative day in and day out. We feel overwhelmed. This is why there's such you know high rates of uh, turning to things that, again, ultimately are distraction, but to try and temporarily make us feel better. Mm-hmm. Sugar. Alcohol, drugs, inappropriate sex, yeah, Yeah. coffee, any, whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, watching YouTube videos, (laughs) all of these things that, again, are designed to take the mind away from itself. Yes. Because it's so painful, but also we're not trained anymore to spend time just with the thoughts of the mind.
1: Yeah. And that's a good point you brought up because I was going to mention it earlier, but then the conversation moved away so quickly, but... I think people don't realize how old and pra- how old a practice yoga is. I mean, if you trace it all the way back, it's about 5000 years old and if you think about it, you know, we we haven't perfected it yet. We haven't perfected being able to sit with our humanity to the extent that we're still trying today and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, this practice has been handed down over the years because at the very beginning people were still sitting there under their tree trying to reflect and question, you know, who are we? Why are we here? What is my purpose in life? You know, how do I give back? And that's what the yoga practice really is all about.
0: Yeah, well, even at its roots too, it was the asana is so modern. Yeah. It's so new. There there was originally one asana,
1: the Which seat of the, meditation. Exactly. Yeah. And I think we mentioned this during a another chat we had a a few weeks ago it might have been months now but i think people don't realize that the asana part of the yoga practice really only developed in the last like 50 to 70 years or so but definitely in the last century and because it was a combination of some of the the fewer yoga asanas with a lot of gymnastics and aerobics so i mean there's no wonder now that you know people that do ballet or gymnastics or yoga they tend to have similar bodies or capabilities because they all influenced each other. But the true yoga was really the sutras and the meditation that the asanas bring you to.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's all of these practices are designed to get us to the point where we can concentrate. Yeah. And then through the practice of concentration, we arrive at a state of meditation. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's kind of when when we talk about and I do this too. When we talk about, oh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm meditating or I'm practicing meditation or I'm sitting, it, it's a little bit inaccurate mm-hmm. where actually you can't just sit down and practice meditation. It doesn't really happen that way. It, you have to be focused and concentrated.
1: It's the end result of a very focused and conscious set of actions that lead you to a state of meditation.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then maybe in that state of meditation, you get a split second, or maybe if you're lucky... Two split seconds yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of stillness in the mind yeah. that sensation so good. Yeah, you feel so good. It's a natural high. Yes, and in that moment or after that moment, things become so much clearer. Yeah, and you are so much more grounded. And this is because you're no longer identifying with the distraction. Yeah, identifying with the physical body and it's more We're just
1: clouded by all of the layers of things that get in the way i mean all of the maya the layers of illusion that that stop us from being able to see things in ourselves through what and who they really are but that's why we meditate is because like it says in the yoga sutras yoga it's yoga is about the stilling of the fluctuations mm-hmm. of the mind and that analogy they use a lot in yoga is you know it's like um like a glass of cloudy water or a muddy lake or pool. It's, you know, there's all of this debris and things that are murky in the waters. And it's hard to see through it. But when you let it still and let all of the debris fall, then things become clear yes. and transparent. And that's the yoga practice.
0: Yes, I know. And it's so amazing because it's so powerful in its simplicity. Yeah. You know, in Ayurveda, the sister science of yoga says that the key to healing is stillness. Mm-hmm. When we allow the body time to be still and to perform its functions and yeah. to you know, detoxify and get back to a natural state of health, then that influences the state of the mind
1: yeah.
0: and the state of the emotions. And through all of that, then we're able to get closer to the connection to source or the divine, yeah. which is the whole point of this. If, yeah. you, if you follow um, yoga philosophy and agree with it and it resonates with you
1: yeah but I think that is something that deep down people are trying to understand is you know what what is it that drives them deep within and who are they without their skin without all of these years of just living as a as a human being in a city or in a modernized world where things are kind of just thrown at us without giving us time to reflect and fun funnily enough, tying this back to our whole technology thing, another good analogy might be that, you know, imagine leaving your computer on with all of your applications, all of your tabs in your browser on and never switching it off. Your computer starts to slow down. And it's the same with our bodies and our minds. If we never give ourselves time to stop and to switch off, we're going to get run down and we're not going to function at our best.
0: Yeah. Well, and when we do that, all of our attention is diverted. So, every part that we're trying to focus on is getting a percentage
1: mm-hmm.
0: of the full power. And it's, yeah, hard to to reprioritize stillness in a world that moves so quickly. Yeah. And then, of course, then we have FOMO, fear of missing out. And <laughs> we see, you know... Oh,
1: Nicholas just... says I have such bad FOMO. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, it's no wonder that we have such a hard time meditating. But it's also, even more than that, I think there's just a huge misconception about what meditating actually is. Yeah. And it's not, it doesn't have to be just sitting down in lotus trying to, you know,
1: force your mind to stop thinking. Because that's not going to happen. No. And I think that's why, I mean, you know I love the pranayama breakfast. Yes, I was just going to say,
0: <laughs> what's, what do, What do you do to move into this space? Um,
1: so the pranayama, for those that aren't fully aware, is it's one of the the eight limbs of a shtanga practice, and it's the yogic science of breathing. And if you go through the logical progression of the the Patanjali sequence, it goes yamas and niyamas, which are your ethical rules of how to behave for yourself and for others. And then it goes into the asanas, which is the physical practice. And then pranayama is the next stage where, instead of just focusing on the way that your body moves, you're starting to think about the way that the breath and and the energy, the prana, moves in and out of your body. And so these breathing exercises, I mean, it's, it seems almost too simple to call them breathing exercises because from the outsider looking in, you could be sitting down there and, you know, you're doing your Bastrika breathing and it's like a really quick sniffing dog and you're doing your Kapalabhati forceful exhales and your alternate nostril breathing. And the thing is, you know, some days you feel like you don't have, again, the time to do that. But what I find is when I go through this sequence of breathing pranayama techniques you start off with the energetic ones to just clear everything out and release that energy and create a little bit of heat and then you start to slow things down, balance out both energies in the body and then you start to be able to practice stillness where your eyes are closed and at least if you're concentrating on something, you're listening to the sound of your breath. And isn't that amazing? Because if you think about it, like I think I said in the pranayama workshop we did together, Mm -hmm. all of our lives begin with a breath we're born, and the first thing we do is we take an inhale and when we pass on to the next room we leave on an exhale and so all of our lives are just a series of inhales and exhales and series of moments tied with the breath and that's what pranayama is you're just coming back to the most simple and basic thing that our bodies do to keep us alive and using that as something to concentrate on to lead into your meditative state i love the breathing I know. I need to do more of it.
0: Yeah, well, I I was curious. You had Maya a little over eight weeks ago. Is that right? Yeah,
1: so she's nine and a half weeks right now. Okay.
0: Yeah. So when did you start your pranayama
1: practice again after delivery? Um, It was probably at three weeks. Uh, We were up at the cabin for Mm. Easter and I managed to steal a bit of time while she was sleeping to crawl up into the hemps which is a little attic they have up there and roll out a yoga mat I did my asana practice to just warm up my body I still had a bit of time so I grabbed the cushion and I sat there looking out at the snow and I did about 10 or 15 minutes of pranayama and that felt so good because I think I mean there's so many things you don't realize becoming pregnant as a yogi that you need to just be brave enough and patient enough to put aside, you know, you can't do all of the invert. You can't do all of the inversions and in arm stands, arm stands, arm balances that you used to do. And, you know, you can't do a full pranayama. It's dangerous to do a full pranayama sequence when you're pregnant because yeah. you don't want to be toying around with all of that energy with another little human going inside of you. It, it's very powerful. So, um, but yeah, it was three weeks after she was born and I, I did my, my sequence and, it was, it was bliss. Mm. And then I took a little break after that because, you know, my excuse is mamahood. There's a lot of things to do and you're changing nappies and burping and feeding and trying to sleep or trying not to fall asleep during pranayama. But I did, um, what was really nice was Nicholas and I did a, a joint pranayama session a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And the most beautiful thing was our little girl sat there patiently, fully awake, for the whole 10 minutes just in between us and staring at us, listening to us breathe. Oh. And I was just, I was like, how we have the most amazing little girl. She didn't cry. She just sat there and and Nicholas and I had our knees touching each other and I kind of felt his fingers twitching. So I was wondering whether he was trying to get me to open my eyes and look at something. It turns out he was just twitching while breathing. <laughs> but so I opened my eyes and I took a little peek and, and Maya was just sitting there just smiling looking at her parents breathing in front of her. And for me, that was a really, really special moment for all of us. Just being able to, at this early stage, share our practice with her.
0: Yeah, that gives me goosebumps. It's so <laughs> powerful and beautiful. And, you know, that's the dream. Yeah. Is that when you live this practice, like you not just that you go to the studio and take a yoga asana class, but when you take it off the mat and it, it shapes and molds who you are and how you show up in the world... Yeah. The dream is to then be able to yeah. help pass that on to our children, whether it's our biological children or nieces, nephews, yeah. friends, it's whoever. Who just your people in the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because the more I think that we can share these messages, you know, again, I said earlier that the Asana is the gateway, but that's just, that's just the beginning. Yeah. And then we open up into the pranayama, like how do we control the breath? How do we play and explore this life force? Yes. Rather than just taking it for granted um, as an autonomic uh, function of the body. Yeah. And then we can move into the concentration. Like what does it feel like to intentionally sit down and then whatever it is, you know, there's so many ways that we can focus. If it's thinking about your guru or a teacher or focusing a, or a mantra, mantra cancel. Candle, candle that om chanting om or silently chanting om thinking about love thinking about compassion like there's so many ways in which we can focus our attention that lead us into that state state of bliss of bliss and meditation and you know demystifying what it means to have a
1: meditation practice yeah you know again or, or even a yoga practice yeah because i think also the way that i see yoga is at least for me, and I think for a lot of people and for you as well, it is a lifestyle. It's not just the one hour that you spend on your mat or on your cushion doing something. And I think that's where the yamas and niyamas come in because, okay, for example, you may not have enough time in a day to do whatever your yoga practice is, whether it's the asanas or the pranayama or the meditation, but if you are at least trying to live your life sincerely, Mm -hmm. thinking about the yamas and niyamas, you know, trying to be the best version of yourself for others, for me, you're already practicing yoga.
0: I totally agree, and it people just forget, you know, that it doesn't have to be as hard as you might think it would. Yeah. No, we start small. We start simple. The practice meets us where we are. Mm-hmm. It's just is our heart open? Is our mind open to this
1: process of transformation? And to receive. Mm-hmm. To receive the inspiration and the teachings and the messages that are. Our- passed on to you magically by you know people that you pass by on the street or bump into at a studio or I mean I got some of my biggest life lessons and profound moments when I was living on an island in the Caribbean for six months that's where I discovered Dharma Yoga I mean who would have thought I mean I'm from the Philippines my mom is from the Philippines I grew up in a lot of different cities and to think that my journey would begin in the Caribbean I mean who would have thought that yeah
0: But, but the time was right exactly the place was right exactly that's the cool thing too, is like, you never know when <laughs> this is going to hit you. And we talk about this in teacher training, how once we start opening that door, pulling those curtains of illusion back, mm-hmm. we can't close that door again. Like no. we've seen too much. We know too much yeah. about the power of yoga to create radical change in our life.
1: Yeah. And funny enough, it's I, when I started practicing yoga, I was 17 and I was doing it with my mom. And it was our way of spending time together. And I never thought that I would become a yoga teacher. But I think the beautiful thing is when you find an aspect of it that really resonates with you. And for me, that was the practice of dharma, for example. I just couldn't not share that with other people. And so for me, at least it's like, okay, I'll do a teacher training to at least influence or be able to pass it on to even just one person. One ripple of change and they'll pass it on to someone else. And it's just, I think... I think when you have been able to experience a taste of bliss, it's almost like it's your obligation to help someone a little bit on their way. Or try to, at least.
0: Yeah, or just point them in the right direction and say, hey, you know, because not everybody is at a point in their life where maybe yoga would make sense. Yeah, You know, of course, there are people, I think, really, really struggling. And there are times when a professional needs to be involved. But for the average person and the average ups and downs of being human, you know, having the heartbreak and challenges and disappointments, and then, you know, of course, the, the other side of the coin, the joy and the love mm-hmm. and the, the fun, yoga is the perfect way to just kind of amplify. Yeah. And amplify the good, but also amplify the shadow a little bit too as a tool of self-reflection. Yeah. And if you're on the path of yoga, then you welcome The challenge and and perhaps the pain and the suffering a little bit because you see that it's impossible and we're taught that it's impossible to fully enjoy the love and the Mm -hmm. bliss unless we understand the other side of it yeah
1: and i'm glad i'm glad that you actually brought up that idea of amplifying what you're feeling is because i know both of us we have quite a few similarities apart from the fact that we're both tauruses i just found out and our birthdays are within a few days three days apart three days apart Um, I know that we both also have quite a strong, maybe people don't realize, but gratitude practice, which I think ties in very strongly with the yoga. And I just started journaling again, just everyday little things that I'm grateful for. But a few years ago, for a whole year, every day, I was just blogging and writing a few things in a day that I was grateful for. And what I realized after that whole year was that gratitude is like this this amazing Mm bolt-on that you can have in your life because you, can, you can't you can be happy and sad at the same time because they're polar opposites by definition. But you can be sad and grateful still at the same time. So gratitude is like this positive bolt-on, just like yoga, that you add on to whatever experience you're going through and somehow manages to shed a little more light and positivity and good feeling in your life. So yeah, I, I think for both of us, yoga and gratitude go really hand-in-hand hand together.
0: And it's it's a muscle that we... Create. Like yeah. You were saying that a little earlier too. Like when we put the the practice into action, which yeah. is a big part of it as well. Like you you can't just say, "Oh, I want to climb that mountain," yeah. and then never take the action to climb the mountain.
1: Yeah, and it's the you same- are what you continuously do. You're a climber because you climb and you go through the motions. You're a yogi because you show up and you do your practice. You're a chef because you cook and you've experimented. You have to put in the hours and the yes. time and the and the presence. Mm-hmm to call yourself what you are. Yeah, there's no
0: quick way. There's no like overnight success. When and if it comes there is, to... you, you need to question it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's with the practice of gratitude too. Yeah. You know, it can be challenging to change your perspective enough to have your default now be gratitude. Yeah. But if you practice it gets easier and easier and easier. Like, um, you know, for me, I know I'll look outside and say, Oh my gosh, the sun, it's so beautiful. Today's gorgeous. And if you're in Norway, you know, we, we definitely need to (laughs) savor these days. And then the person next to me might say, yeah, well, it's probably going to rain tomorrow. Yeah. You know? And so it's okay. Well, are you person one or person two? Do you look at the sun? And say, "Oh wow! Sure, I understand it's temporary, and it
1: probably is going to rain tomorrow." But how great that it's here right now!
0: Yes, in yeah. this moment. And then when it rains tomorrow, rather than being like, oh, rain again," be like, "Wow, it we is
1: have rain on the earth, and we have that water. That life. Yes, and gives us something to drink. And yeah, it's. I think the whole gratitude thing, as well is it's, it's choosing to see the light. I mean, it's it." It's a choice and a lifestyle, yes. just like yoga. You can choose to dwell on the negative, or you can flourish okay. with the positive. Positive begets positive.
0: Yes, and it's choice is such a big, big, big part of the practice of yoga. That gets overlooked a lot too. Like it's choice is one of my very favorite concepts to consider, because in every single present moment,
1: mm-hmm. in
0: this pause, right here, right now. Which way are you going to go right? Or are you going to go left? Are you going to say yes? Or are you going to say no? Mm-hmm. Are you going to meet the moment with possibility? Or are you going to meet the possibility with fear? Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, as we're human and we understand that humanity, some days we're not going to make the choice that's most optimal for us. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. We start again in the next present moment. It's like, appa, now. Yeah. Very first word of the sutras, <laughs> now. <laughs> now, in this present moment, we have a choice. Yes. Do we practice the yoga or do we not practice the yoga? It's that
1: simple. And I think it's funny because a few um, a few classes ago before I went on Mama Param, it was something that I, I spontaneously said when uh, we were practicing Hanumanasana. People were in the splits and, you know, I, you either love it or you hate it. You're flexible and you just slide into it or you're stiff and you're still working to get your hips and your pelvis to the ground. And I try and remind people and my students when they're in there to smile. Because I say to them, I was like, no one's forcing you to do this. No one's forcing you to be here or to do this pose or to show up, but you did. You chose to show up today, so there is somewhere deep inside of you that it's not about the asana, but just trying to do your best and be present in this moment to breathe through whatever you're feeling and try and find stillness and realize that the moment will pass. And I think that's another great thing that I love about yoga is there's so many parts of it that are a metaphor for life. Mm. Just that's where the physical practice is where you start. But if you start to think about what you're doing on the mat and find a way to translate that into whatever is going on in your personal life, you'll usually get some sort of message out of it mm-hmm. if you're still enough to listen. Yes. And humble enough to put down your ego. Yes. And to listen to the teachings. Oh, so important. Yeah. So important.
0: That humility and that like beginner mindset. Yeah. There's always something new to learn. There's always a new perspective or um, shift or change to how we look at things. And it's you know, that's why as teachers we have to keep growing and we have to keep studying and staying close to our teachers and
1: Or just trying trying different things out. I mean I I say to people that talk to me as well, it's you know, don't just do Dharma Yoga or Hatha or Vinyasa or Ashanga, just try different styles, try different teachers, different experiences Mm -hmm. because it might not be your perfect one, but I can assure you you're bound to learn something, whether it's what you like or what you don't like, and all of that contributes towards your knowledge and your experience in your practice of yoga.
0: Yes, and self-inquiry. Yes. The svadhyaya, the self-reflection, like experiences good and bad. Yeah. Show us who we are when we're present. Yes. And not giving into the distractions.
1: And brave enough to try new experiences yes. and not just fall back on what's comfortable and yes. safe.
0: Yeah. I mean, a spiritual path requires courage. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it gets scary for some people is it starts to get a little uncomfortable.
1: Yeah.
0: When they are asking hard questions. And, you know, they come then again, you get asked a hard question. You're back to choice in the present moment. Are you gonna say, gosh, this is really uncomfortable? Do I stay and breathe or do I turn and run? Yeah. And some days we turn and run. It's true. We do. But the days that we choose to stay and breathe, that's when we make progress. Yep.
1: And another door opens. Yes. And that gives us a little more courage to just go that little bit further, that one step ahead.
0: Yes. Oh, So speaking of which, I want to ask you a hard question before we Gosh. wrap up. <laughs> so this is the question that I'm, I'm asking everybody on the podcast, <clears throat> which is really about what I think one sacred pause is. You know, Just that one moment to realize that we're more than this temporary existence, the, the meat suit.
1: Yeah, that's a good <laughs> way to put it.
0: Yes. So who would you be, Krissa, if you got still enough and quiet enough to listen to the wisdom within?
1: I think, or I would like to think that I would be this meat suit, or at least myself, but without any regret or fear and just able to accept who I am where I am in this life what my purpose is and just go with the flow and not try and overthink it too much I mean it could be very easy for me to say okay if I was still enough I would be some holy guru changing the world Or I would be the biggest philanthropist or charity worker or I I would adopt all of the children. I mean, there's so many things I could say if I was the perfect person, but I think the whole idea of being able to, to be true to yourself and just peel back the layers is wherever you are in life, you accept that that's where you're meant to be. So I think that makes any sense. No, it totally makes sense. I would be the Krista that is just happy being. Yeah. I could be Krista walking down the street and that's where I'm supposed to be. I'm just there. Yeah. Present.
0: Yeah. No, I love it. And I think that's also part of that humility that comes into it is not setting our expectations so high that we're going to fail.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, but of course, you know, if you got still enough and quiet enough to listen, you know, I'm not saying that you would set yourself up for failure, but I think that's so far from where most of us are. On
1: a daily basis. But I think also if, if if in that ideal perfect amazing situation that we were quiet enough to yes. find stillness, I'd like to think the idea is that you are so seated within your soul and your essential self that doesn't need anything more. Yeah. It doesn't need to change or to question. You're just happy and content wherever you are. Because yeah. your your eternal soul, your spirit, your prana, whatever you want to call it, it, it already knows At mom. everything. At one, you already know everything. Yeah. So you're just there. I, I, I'm i just here sitting, having a coffee and a chat with you. Yeah. I love it. Being fully present. Yeah. Not asking for anything more.
0: Yes. I think, gosh, that makes me feel so happy just even hearing that. Like the, <laughs> the vocalization of what that would be like. Yeah. You know, because we need to be reminded over and over and over that, oh, yes, that is it. That is what a spiritual path is all about. And this yoga and inquiry is all about just yeah. being content and present
1: here and now. Yeah. And that's why I'm looking forward to more of your podcasts. Yes. To give me a constant reminder. Yes. Check in. Breathe. <laughs> when breathe. you're not forcing me to sit down with you for yes. an hour and talk about yes. these things. Oh, <laughs> gosh.
0: Well, thank you for sitting down. Thank you for and having me having here. Having little sweet baby Maya over there. She is the definition of contentment. She did good. She did good. But um, thank you for listening and uh, stay tuned for the next podcast and more raw dialogue about spirituality and meditation and yoga. See you around, folks. Hada. Hada. <laughs>